We're going to focus today on Exodus chapter 6, but I'm going to just, it's been a couple of weeks, so I'm going to pick up a little bit at the end of chapter 5 and read down to the end of chapter 6. So I'll I'll, um, start at Exodus chapter 5, verse 22, and you follow along in your copy of God's word as I read from mine, beginning in verse 22 of Exodus 5. This is what God's word says. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord says to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kahath, Merari, the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel for the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years, the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife 
Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and, the Abi, and Abi Asaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Well, I have to say, um, I'm absolutely loving this spring weather. I hope you are too. I, I know I opened with that last week, but it hit me again this week, especially as temperatures crept up into the 80s. So I, I reserve the right to say that again. Now the other thing that something else that's creeping up on me is all of the yard work that now needs to be done. Um, you know the grass is ready to be cut. I've got a bunch of trees to, to chop up and I'm not complaining. I actually love yard work. It's, it's something that I can immediately see some tangible results of. Uh, which is a nice break for me. So I, I actually really enjoy yard work. The only thing that I don't like about yard work is that I seem to have terrible luck with my equipment. I mean, I can't imagine anyone has worse luck with their lawn tractors, their push mowers, my weed whacker, my chainsaw, you name it, it it'll go on the fritz pretty quickly. And I predict that at some point this summer, probably multiple points this summer, I'll have major problems with every piece. I'll be going along quite nicely, you know, chopping up this or that, and then my equipment is gonna stall out. And I'll have to haul it back to my garage and attempt to fix it. Pretend like I know what I'm doing and make it worse. Now, in some ways, that's, that's what it feels like to read this narrative. And perhaps you'll recall the sense that we got at the end of chapter 2. I realize it's a couple of weeks ago now, but uh, just try to recall that, that feeling as, you know, Moses and Aaron, they've been deployed to go speak to first to their own people, the people of Israel, and tell them about what the Lord has determined to do to free them from their slavery. And you may recall that they went on that mission with great enthusiasm, kind of like a zero turn, just kind of awakening from a long winter's nap and lurching forward out into the yard. It's, it's newly sharpened teeth, hungry. And things revved up even higher after Moses and Aaron spoke to these guys and their message uh, met with a wonderful reception. This is what we read in chapter two, 4, verse 22. It says that the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, 
they bowed their heads and worshipped. Let's go. This whole thing is on. We're going to really start moving now. And I think, you know, fueled by that really wonderful reception, Moses and Aaron approach the Pharaoh now, kind of like a, a chainsaw approaches a tree, just raring to go, ready to inflict maximum damage, excited to see a great fall. But the story of chapter 5 is that as soon as they made contact with Pharaoh, as soon as they delivered the Lord's message to him, basically the, the chain came flying off the bar. It, it hit that, the hardened heart of that godless king and instantly everything crashes and burns. Now, so if you're tracking the progress of God's great rescue plan, then you'll have noticed the same thing likely as what noticed, uh, Moses noticed at the end of chapter 5. Namely, that the Lord appears to not have delivered his people at all. This, this thing hasn't even really started. In fact, there's a regress. The people's situation is worse off. You remember that their burdens got even heavier after Moses and Aaron demanded their freedom. That's the wrong direction. That's not the way that this is supposed to be going. And then perhaps you'll notice as we've just read chapter 6 now that the narrative doesn't really seem to develop at all. It seems like it's stalled out here in this chapter. And it's stalled out due to the doubts and the unbelief of both Israel and Moses. And I just wonder, as we get started here, um, if you can relate to that at all. Have, has your spiritual life stalled out? Does it feel like there's very little progress? Does it feel, actually, if you're being honest with yourself, that there's, it's more like there's regress? If so, I, I know that it's tempting to, to blame um, other people, kind of like the Israelites are doing here. It's very tempting to blame the Lord, like Moses does. But actually, the problem is with us. The problem is down to our doubt and our disbelief. Th this is our, our problem. And when things stall out due to doubt, it's, it's necessary, before the thing can move forward, it's necessary for us to get hauled back to the garage if you will. We need a tune-up. We need uh, to get our chain sharpened. We need to get our spiritual spark plugs regapped. We need to top off the, the gas tank. And what we desperately need during these times is to be reminded of truth. We need doctrine to dispel our doubts. And so... That's exactly what we have here in chapter 6. Doctrine for doubt. Ch truths that we need for a, for a tune-up. Truths about God and truths about us. And uh, in the time that we have remaining, I'd like to show you four of these from the text. And here they are, in case we run out of time. I'll give them to you right off the hop. Four truths that we need 
doctrines for our doubt, here they are. He is, he will, I am, I must. He is, he will, I am, I must. Okay, let me, uh, let me show you some of this. First of all, he is. He is. One of the best ways to understand the main point of a passage, um, whenever you're studying the Bible for yourself or like this together, uh, one of the best ways to kind of get at the point of the, that the author is trying to make is to see what words or phrases the author repeats most often. And if you do that little exercise in our chapter here, Exodus 6, the phrase that leaps off the page over and over again is, I am. I am. Or more fully, I am the Lord. It's everywhere. You see it in verse 2, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 8. And this leads me to believe that in the face of all of Moses' doubts and, and ours, the, the most important truth that he could be reminded of is that the Lord is. He just is. I use the word reminded because Moses already knows this. The Lord has already revealed this very important kind of self-revelation. He, he has made himself known this way to Moses back in chapter 3. Hopefully you remember that because it's a very memorable kind of revelation. The Lord speaks this name, the name that he determines to be known by, he speaks it out of a burning bush a bush that is fully ablaze with the glory and the holiness of God, and yet it's not consumed. And shouting forth out of that bush is the Lord identifying himself simply as I am. And I say simply, but actually there couldn't be anything more profound. There couldn't be a name more meaningful, mysterious even. The Lord is declaring himself, among all the, all the other things that uh, Pastor Jason led us in prayer about this name, the Lord is declaring himself to be utterly self-existent and self-sufficient in need of in no, nothing. You know, when we introduce ourselves, we always need to describe ourselves in reference to something or someone else, even this genealogy is I'm the this is the son of this mother and this father you know we always need to refer to ourselves in time or space or with other people but for the Lord himself you understand there is nothing outside of him that is prior or that is superior or that can serve as a, a frame of reference for him he is his own point of reference so the best that he can say is, I am who I am. And really, th this idea is codified in the name itself, the name Yahweh. So every time that you see in your Bibles, usually translators do this, that they mark out the name Yahweh with a capital L, but then also a capital O-R-D, though a little bit smaller. Uh, this is the name that the Lord gave to Moses to give to the people. This is how 
God must be known to them. The Lord, Yahweh, this is my name. And he says, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Those were the clear instructions that were given at the revelation there in chapter 3, verse 15. I am is the special way that the Lord saw fit to reveal himself at this stage of salvation history. And the Lord says in our chapter here, verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, or El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this is a little bit tricky to understand because in the book of Genesis, we actually find the word Yahweh for God a number of different places. It's not as if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were totally unfamiliar with this name. However, the primary way in which they, they understood God and addressed God at that time was by his name El Shaddai, which roughly translates to God Almighty. He was known to them ba- um, mainly in terms of his, his, his power and his might, his ability to do anything for them. But now it's as if uh, the Lord saying to Moses, I've revealed myself to you now as Yahweh, the great I am. And now I'm going to show you the the significance of that name. Uh, They may have known the name back then, but they have never really fully understood the significance of this name. You're going to. You're going to experience me, and you're going to know me and my name in a way that neither Abraham nor Isaac nor Jacob ever did. You, Moses, and the people of Israel are going to get to see and get to know who I truly am. I am. Well, the context also, I think, leads us to understand something else about this Yahweh, this God who is. And that is that he is a covenant-making God. He's a covenant-remembering God. This is amazing. This is a God we understand from his name and from his revelation that doesn't need anything, doesn't need anyone. And yet he condescends in grace and mercy to enter into covenantal relationships with sinful human beings in order to do them good, to bless them so that they would be a blessing. What, a, what an amazing God this is, that he is a covenant-making God. And he de- he's not like us. You know, sometimes our kids have to remind us of things that we've promised, and they'll remember. We forget, but they'll remember that we said that we, could, we, we weren't going to have ice cream that night, but we would go sometime next week. Your kids will remember that. God is not like you and my wife, me and my wife, okay? God remembers all of the promises that he has ever made and he is going to keep them. It has everything to do with who he is. It's, it, so, so let me just recap, okay? I, what are we learning about the Lord? What truths are being sharpened in this tune-up that we so desperately need? Well, first, God is. He just is. He's eternal, he's self-existent, he's self-sufficient. He says, I am that I am. That's his name. You see that in verses 2 to 3. Second, 
we're seeing that this God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He's faithful. That's the message of verses 4 and 8. And I I love Hebrews uh, chapter 6, verses 13 and following on this point. This is what immediately popped to mind when I was meditating on this. That verse really takes us back to the promise that God made with Abraham. And this is what that text says. Since God had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore to himself. Again, no outside point of reference that he could make an oath to. So he swears to himself and and he says, I will surely bless you and multiply you. So, Hebrews continues, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable nature or character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. I I love that passage and it's reminding us that God will be faithful to every promise that he has ever made because it is his nature and he has sworn by himself because there is no one higher to swear to that he will accomplish in us and for us what he has determined that he will. The point is that who God is is the doctrine that will dispel all kinds of doubt. He's a covenant-making God. He, he swears by himself, and it's impossible for him to lie. It guarantees that he's going to keep all of his promises. And friends, I hope you can immediately see just how strong of an encouragement that is to dispel our doubts and enable us to cling once again onto the hope that is set before us. And then third, what are we learning about this God? This is a this Lord, this Yahweh is a God who hears. This is a I think an important point in the text even though it's a, it's pretty subtle. I almost called this sermon the God who listens because no one else in this passage is listening. Um, maybe you noticed that the people don't listen. Pharaoh isn't going to listen, but God by strong contrast is a God who listens. He look at verse five. He says, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. That the, the cry, their cries have ascended up to him, so to speak. And he turns an ear to it and he is moved with compassion and he's moved to action on the basis of his hearing. And so I say to you, friends, brothers and sisters, behold your God. This is, this is who he is. And we desperately need this reminder, don't we? For Moses, um, Pharaoh and the people are going to loom very large in his thinking and in his sight. And for us, you know, our problems are going to kind of move to center stage. And with them, all kinds of doubts and unbelief are going to be ushered in so that that's what's in front of our gaze. And to dispel that doubt, what we need, we we need to turn the spotlight on God. 
we, and not just any God, not just some kind of abstract, mushy, diffuse notions about some deity. No, we need to f- shine the spotlight on this God, on Yahweh, the God who is the great I am, the eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient God, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God, the God who hears, the God who pities. This God, if he's in our view, has the power to chase away all of our doubts and our fears. So let's build on this, okay? It's not just that he is, but we need to know that he will, and that's our second doctrine for doubt, he will. That's, a, that's another oft-repeated phrase in this passage. It's the Lord saying, I will. Actually, that, that's a pretty good exercise. If you're the type of person that doesn't mind marking up your Bible, um, you should just go back through verses 1 to 9 and underline or circle or highlight whatever it is that you do. Highlight any time that you come across the Lord saying either I am or I will. And um, what I predict is that you'll mark up that paragraph pretty good. And these are going to kind of point you in the direction of the doctrine that is capable of dispelling your doubt. It's not just an academic exercise if you were to do that. These are, these are pointers. These are signs that are pointing you to the, the truth that is going to give you hope in the midst of doubt. And I want you also to notice the relationship between the two. God's identity, who he is, issues forth in his activity, what he does. He does in keeping and in, in accordance with who he is. And we'll say, see the, in a minute here that the same thing is true about us. Our identity kind of flows into our activity. But let's get into it. What exactly will God do? Let's look at verse 1 first. And this really is the Lord's response to Moses' complaint at the end of chapter 5. The complaint is essentially, God, what are you doing? And why me? And you haven't delivered your people at all. That's the complaint in a nutshell. And we've kind of let those complaints just hang out there for a couple of weeks now. And now we're going to get to see how the Lord responds to them. And by the way, he's not required to respond to any of our complaints. I hope you understand. But often we find in scripture that he graciously does. Maybe not in the way that we would like him to, but the answer is that that God gives are not always kind of on the same level as our complaints, but he's gracious to respond. And that, that's certainly the case with, the, with this present complaint. He doesn't, he doesn't ar- get in on the level of arguing tit for tat and point for point with Moses' complaint. God simply replies, hey, Moses, now you're going to get to see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
You see, Moses was expecting to just kind of waltz into the king's palace and give the command and then see, I guess he was expecting to see Pharaoh just immediately concede and capitulate. That would have been amazing. But the Lord is actually cooking up something that's even more amazing. The Lord's plan is even greater, even greater than that. In fact, when you consider that, if it's, if it's just kind of an easy capitulation, there, there's not a lot of glory and power and might. There's not a huge testimony to the Lord that, that there could be. And so it's almost like chapter 5, which, which features Pharaoh's great resistance and um, the increase of people's burdens. It's almost like it is a, a setup for something so much greater, for a much more glorious display of God's power and, and might and glory than we otherwise would have expected. It, like I said, if, if right away people let the Pharaoh let the people go, that would be great on one level, but verse 1 seems to be indicating that God is intending a, a much more significant flex, if, if we could put it that way. He wants Pharaoh to come to the point, not just where he permits the people of Israel to leave, rather... God wants to get him to the point where he demands that they leave, that he's begging for them to leave. You see that in verse 1? He will instead, God says, drive them out of his land. Like, get out of here. I can't take this anymore. And I think I can give you a, a couple of quick examples of New Testament examples of, of this principle at work. I think about John chapter 9, which is, I think, one of the greatest um, chapters in the Gospels. It's the account of um, Jesus healing the man who was born blind, and it's actually a hilarious um, account. But the, the disciples, everyone really at that time is believing, they're, they're trying to understand um, why this guy was born blind. And the common thinking in that day was, well, he must be a sinner, or either him or his parents were a sinner. They, everyone just took for granted that blindness had to do with personal sin. It was just a question of whose sin was it, the guys himself or his parents. And Jesus explains that it was neither. Rather, Jesus says, that this guy was born blind so that, quote, the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, this man's handicap, this, his whole life basically, had been a setup for this one moment in which the great workings of God done through his son, the incarnate Christ, might be just gloriously displayed, showcased in this man. And then a second example, it comes just a couple of chapters later in John 11. You're familiar perhaps with the, the fact that Jesus' good friend Lazarus died. And uh, he, he, was, he was sick, and Jesus knew about that. But Jesus, it seemed, delayed. 
And you have to wonder, why the delay, Lord? You, you could have done something about this while he was sick. Why, why are you holding off? And that's what Mary and Martha were wondering. What, why, what took you so long? This is what the disciples were wondering. And then we read in verse 15 of John 11, what Jesus says about the delay and about the death. He says, quote, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not here, so that you may believe. In other words, the delay, the, the greater display of the working of God is for the purpose of de- developing the disciples' faith. It's, it's for the purpose of greater faith on the part of all who see and believe. Now back to our chapter. Look at verse 7. The Lord says that this forthcoming display of power in Egypt is going to be so that the people of Israel will know that he is the Lord their God. It's, it's so that they would know and believe and have faith in their God. And similarly, if we read a little bit further into chapter 7, verse 5, we, God there says that he's going to act in such a way as to have all of Egypt know that he is the Lord. So what he's building up for here is a tremendous display of his glory and his power that will be for the faith of his people and for the testimony of his name throughout the nations. Now, let's just get really practical here for a second. I I think that this is very helpful because if you're like Moses and filled with doubt and um, anxiety, and maybe even if you're full of accusations about your situation, if you're crying out things like this to the Lord, why? Why me? How long? One thing that I think you, you should consider as being a very real possibility, is that the Lord is seeking in your situation to maximize his glory. The the delay, his delay might be very intentional. It is very intentional. But it might be be just a, a big setup for the maximal display of the great workings of God in your life that will be for the strength of your faith and perhaps be a great testimony to all who are watching. There's a very high chance that that God's goal for your situation is to work in such a way as to bring about a greater knowledge of who he is. Or perhaps, like I suggested, perhaps he intends for others to come to know, maybe for the first time, that he is the Lord. This is what our God is really into, salvation. And that's described in verses 6 to 8 in the most beautiful way. This is the content of the message that Moses is commissioned to communicate to the people. This is the great doctrine that's given for their doubt, that God will save. Look look at all of the I wills in these verses. Verse 6, I will bring you out from under your burdens. That's what God promises to do. And that's an easy thing for me to picture because sometimes when my son Jonathan comes home from from school or from hiking in the woods, 
he's carrying a big old backpack that's like three quarters his size and it feels like double his weight I don't know how he does it but I love it when he comes home and he backs up to me and I just kind of lift the two straps and he walks out from underneath that backpack I'm sure he must love that too you know the 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 feeling the relief of having that big burden off of his back or if you need another picture think about pilgrim's progress Think about when Christian saw that cross and he felt the burden loosed from off of his shoulders and it fell off of his back and it tumbled down the hill and it rolled all the way into an empty tomb and was gone forever. At that point, Bunyan writes, then was Christian glad and lightsome. And he said with a merry heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. This is our God. He, he declares that he will remove the burden of these people. And now look at verses 7 and 8, where this same theme of bringing out from our burdens is picked up again. And th- there's more here that God says that he'll do. Not just simply to bring us out of something bad, but to bring us into something beautiful. He promises them that he's going to bring them into that same land that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would give to them. Not just for their sojourning, but for their possession. It's going to be their land. And when you understand that when the Lord saves us, he doesn't just bring us out of darkness, but he translates us into his marvelous light. He doesn't just rescue us from death and judgment. No, he, he brings us into life, even life everlasting. We're not just saved from hell. He welcomes us into paradise. And so so complete is God's salvation that he brings his people all the way home. And back to verse 6. There's two more he wills here. The message continues. I will deliver you from slavery. And I will redeem you. That word redeem such an important word in scripture. If you want a picture of that one, think about, think about what Bertie does when she takes all of our pop cans from downstairs and takes them to the redemption center. That, that place wants them back, and so they end up, you know, they rather them, they can do something with them. They don't want them in the landfill, so they give you five cents for each one of those things. Ten cents if you could ever crunch the numbers and figure how it would be profitable to take them to Michigan. Um, but this, this is similar to, to what the Lord does when he saves a person. He, he's a kinsman redeemer. He buys us back because he loves us and he can, he, he's got plans to do something with us. He buys us back out of our slavery to sin and he ransoms us, so to speak, out of our capture from the devil And he pays for this at his own cost. This is another one of these passages where really each of these aspects of salvation could be their own sermon. And as tempting as as it is for me to linger, I need to move on. And uh, before I do, though, let me just point out one last thing that God declares he will do. Look at verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 
if we had to put a word to what he's describing here, I think probably the best word would be adoption. This is the ultimate goal of our rescue. It's, it's, it's to have a deep and personal relationship with. It's to have an intimate knowledge of the God who has redeemed us. He will be our God and we will be his people, a people for his own possession. What wonderful promise, what wonderful truths to preach to yourself, to remind you of. Well, when Moses tells the people this message, what was their response? It's, it's really quite sad if you look at verse 9. It says, they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. They were too burdened, too beat down, too enslaved to hear the, the very news that would give them hope and encouragement. That God is and that God will do for them. They're, they're unable to hear it. And may it not be so for us, brothers and sisters. In, in the midst of our burdens, let's, uh, let's rehearse all that God has revealed himself to be. And let's, let's remind ourselves, each other and our own souls, all that he has bound himself to do for us and for our salvation. I'm, I'm suggesting that these are the very doctrines that will dispel our doubt and drive it far out of our soul. Now, having seen two truths about God, let us briefly, briefly consider two things about ourselves. I am. I am. Now, I realize that sounds bad in this context. In this passage where the I am statements right, rightly belong to God, it's, it sounds kind of blasphemous to speak this way about ourselves. You know, in the, in the midst of this recent Anheuser-Busch brouhaha, brouhaha, uh, I, was, I was reminded of the advertising campaign that, that Molson did for much of my, the years that I was growing up, um, long stretch there in, in the 80s and 90s, it went something like this on all the commercials, or on all the branding, it was Molson Canadian, I am. And it, it seemed that it was, it was just a blasphemous response to what God himself declares. And what Bud Light attempted this past week was, well, it was light compared to that sort of blasphemy. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is for us to kind of appropriate things about our identity. We need to understand who we are in the midst of doubt. Our identity plays such a big um, factor in our doubts, and it seems to be a big component of what Moses is struggling with. Part of his complaint is, why did you ever send me? And in, in the past, he's objected to his commission saying, who am I? You, you understand, these are all identity kinds of objections. And all of these old objections seem to be resurfacing as his doubt grows. Look at verse 12. When the Lord commissions him to go to Pharaoh, Moses says, Behold, the people of Israel haven't listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? 
He's saying, look, Lord, I, I already went to what was supposed to be a captive audience. My, you know, my very people presented to me with the very best potential for the ver- very best reception of this message, but they rejected it. And if they reject it, what makes you think that Pharaoh, this hostile, hard-hearted, godless king, is going to listen? Besides, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. And here he's not, what he's referring to is not his sin, his acknowledgement of his guilt. He's not speaking like Isaiah would speak in Isaiah 6. No, he's basically, this is an expression basically just to say, I remember, Lord, my speech impediment. I, I can't speak. My lips are uncircumcised. I've got some sort of barrier there that gets in the way of being able to speak clearly. And so what we see is Moses just trotting out all of these old excuses. But the truth, the truth that Moses is missing is something important about his identity. That he's known and loved and chosen by God. Hang with me for a few more minutes because I want to I just uh, handle this genealogy in a couple of sentences. I think you'll be on board with that. But I think this is one of the main reasons why this genealogy is here in verses 14 to 25. In some ways, it's confusing. It's a, it's a little out of place, and I'm sure that I don't understand um, maybe not even most of the reasons why Moses chose to place that material here. But one of the reasons comes into focus at the end of it, in verses 26 and 27, with the emphasis that it was this Moses and this Aaron whom the Lord commissioned. It says it was they who spoke to Pharaoh. You you hear the emphasis there, um, and by the repetition This is certainly being emphasized by Moses himself. It seems that one of the purposes of this family tree has everything to do with identity. It's given for us, I think, so that we would understand that what we're listening to, what we're reading, is not some fairy tale. It's not some fiction. You're going to need to remember that beginning next week. This is... this. We need to understand that we're dealing with fact. We're dealing with history. These these people are rooted in times and locations. They have spouses and children. They have family trees. That's good for us to know. But I think it was good for Moses to reflect on this reality as a way to kind of recapture his identity in the midst of his doubt. Here he is, way down the line, First of all, he's connected to this family that God's made all of these precious promises to. He's a great, 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 great grandson of of Jacob. So he's in this chosen family. And among all of the other names and all of the stories, some of them will become recognizable as you continue to read in the Old Testament. You come across these two names, Moses and Aaron. And Moses is saying, the author here is saying, it's this Moses and this Aaron who are known by God, who are loved by God, who are chosen by God and commissioned by God. And now I understand, even though you're not given the same specific commission by God as Moses and Aaron, though I think I could, if I had time, 
I could probably make a, a case from Matthew 28 that we all have a very similar kind of commission. It seems to me that you can still quell whatever doubts and anxieties and unbelief that you might be experiencing currently in your Christian life by reflecting on your identity. You need to rehearse something about who you are. When you're tempted to ask, why me? Here's your answer. Because you're known by God. Because you're loved by God. Because you're chosen by God. When when you're tempted to trot out all of these old excuses and old identities, remind yourself of your new and your lasting identity. Moses is not to be known as the guy with uncircumcised lips. No, he's to be known as the guy, the guy, who God sent with an important message for Pharaoh. Consider who you are because of what the Lord has done in you. And, And let that doctrine, let those truths just chase away all of your doubts and your fears. Well, you've been very patient. Can I give you a parting gift? Can I give you a a parting doctrine for your doubt? It's simply this, I must. I must. We've said that identity leads to activity. That's true with the Lord. It's also true with us. You're going to live in the light of what you believe yourself to be. But even if you're not quite there yet, even if you're struggling to believe, even if you are plagued by doubt currently, and it, fe- it feels like that doubt, that fog is not going to lift, I want to just remind you that your duty to the Lord remains. Moses is still struggling, you can tell. He's rehashing old objections. But if you'll also notice... The Lord doesn't indulge Moses on these points. He doesn't give uh, Moses' objections any kind of airtime or any kind of quarter. I want you to just look here at verses 10 to 13. Look how it's structured. It's this simple. The, The Lord gives Moses a duty in verses 10 to 11. Moses objects in verse 12. God repeats the duty in verse 13. And I think the message for us is simply that your doubts are not to rule the day. At the end of the day, you have duties before the Lord, and he requires your obedience. He doesn't require that you understand everything perfectly or even at all. He doesn't He doesn't demand that you clear away every single one of the doubts before you can get down to work. No, he demands that you obey. He requires your obedience. He's given you a charge. See that language there in verse 13. That's what he's given us, a charge, and it's our duty to obey. So here's what we need to say. When doubt is stubborn, when unbelief still lurks, Despite the doctrine that we are seeking to chase it away with, we must still say, I must. I must. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're encouraged by these four truths today. I pray that by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that these doctrines will dispel your doubts.
Remember that he is and he will. Remember that I am and I must. The Lord bless you.